Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Psychology. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology. And welcome back to part two of my conversation with the brilliant Mark Dolan. Here we pick it up with Mark talking about what might be holding him back. I think my desire to please has held me back in some ways and works against who I want to be and where, where, I, where I want to be. Um, and I think that sometimes this accommodating um, personality means that in that pure Darwinian sense, I'm, I'm, I'm possibly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually losing the race slightly against other people who are more pushy, mm. who are more self-confident, who will elbow their way in. And I'm, t- I'm far too nice, really. And I talk about it in my comedy. I make a, a lot of yeah. material about being too nice. And I always joke about how when I was at university, I was so nice that girls were so difficult because it was always my job to walk all the girls home at the end of the night, which is actually true. (laughs) And they would be like, go with Mark, nothing will happen, you know, which would be flattering. But then again, it's also slightly insulting if you think about it. Yeah. Well, I think think this is this comes out in your material in other ways. Your uh, breezy, uh, you know, eager to please style. Um, observation or but then there's a little bite to it which becomes bigger in places which maybe gives that hint I'd like to be a little bit more ruthless I'd like to be a little bit more darker is that a fair assessment definitely Mm. and I think this this show is all about people really being honest Mm. and um, letting their guard down and I would say to you that I think that I have definitely been too nice over the years uh, at times. Mm. And what that means is um, sometimes maybe accepting if there's, I don't know. I think that I'm envious of the real brass neck that some other performers have, like who can be a bull in a china shop and storm into a meeting and say, you have to hire me. I'm the best. Mm. And I actually think that at this stage, which is hopefully maybe around the middle of my life, if I'm very lucky, mm. um, and, and also bang in the middle of my career, because I think artists generally, uh, whether it's comedians or writers, broadcasters, 
you know, I think, I personally think 40s, 50s, that's like actually the peak time for, yeah. for, for people that do what I do. So I'm not, I'm not fearful of, oh dear, I've missed the boat. Yeah. I know there are millions of outstanding young comics age 23 in t-shirts doing jokes about their girlfriends and, and those those people are fantastic. But actually, all of my, if I think of my comedic heroes, Woody Allen, David Letterman, Dave Allen, if I think of those people, I picture them as, as men with slightly thinning hair. <laughs> and, um, you know, they are sort of into that middle-aged w- window. That's where I, I see yeah. uh, entertainers at there. Wogan as well, you know, I can't, I, I'm not even sure Wogan ever was like 20. I think he was born <laughs> in his early 50s. So he yeah. just came out with this unusual <laughs> hair and um, sideburns. And that was just it in a roll neck sweater. But, yeah. you know, and I think... Um, so anyway, I, I think that maybe what I, that I'm hopeful that I can change and keep all of the good stuff, which is that I think hopefully I'm a nice person. Yeah. But I think I somehow need to find um, a little bit more of a ruthless streak and be a bit less accommodating, a bit more pushy. Yeah. And the reason why is because I think sometimes being nice, although on the face of it is a valuable quality, I think it's quite self-destructive and I'm not even sure that it's that sincere or honest. And I think maybe, you know, because I've got friends who are just so direct and there's no nonsense, no bullshit, Mm. no filter. And I think, see how it it saves a lot of time and people, it's really good to have people that just what they, what you see is what you get. Yeah. I think maybe I need to do that. And you're far too. So do you think a lot lot of the time you're not honest then? Well, I wonder, I think there's a flip side with being mm. really nice and being really yeah. lovely and stuff. I mean, it's not that I would be lovely and then really shitty behind your back. That's no, it. I'm no. consistently, I really, I really walk the being nice walk. Yeah. But I think that, I, th- I just wonder if, if, it's a, if it's a defense mechanism and that I'm actually hiding behind it and that to a degree it could be holding me back. Mm. And I just wonder whether what happens when you get to middle age is you sort of think, right, it's now or never. Mm. And career wise, I'm thinking, well, um, you know, I am now. I, I'm still what you kind of roughly categorize as a youngish sort of bloke, but I mm. won't be forever. And I really don't want to be going into production, TV production companies, age 60, going, I've got this new idea for a game show. Do you know what I mean? Just the thought fills me with horror. <laughs> so I'm sort of thinking, I, I sort of do need to get on with it a bit. Mm. And I think, therefore, um, if we're going to have this sort of second coming, as it were. And by the way, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of radio, which I'm really enjoying. And mm. the stand-up hopefully will never go away. And it's pure pleasure to do it. But I wouldn't mind having one crack at the, the big time yeah. with all the experience I've got. But I wonder whether what I've got to do is get real and be more authentic and be a little bit more ruthless. Yeah. But, you know, old habits die hard. Mm. Well, as I say, this, this comes across sometimes in the material so if we if we play in a clip here i think it just illustrates um what i've been talking about here so let's have a listen to this clip yeah i was in uh, wh smith recently because uh, i know how to live and i uh, it's a strange business um they've got this thing i was in there recently and i want to have some water i want to buy some buxton water and they've got this deal where you have to have the daily telegraph have you guys seen that it's it's, it's very strange and it's like you know, I'm thinking I'm thirsty, but then I don't want this horrible right-wing rag in my life. Do you know what I mean? 
Well, I, so I relented, obviously. It was a hot day. And, uh, you know, afterwards, I, I felt hydrated, but I kind of also thought the Jews do cause a lot of problems. <laughs> so, yeah, as I say, it's... Uh... I think it's illustrative of a lot of your bits and a lot of the bits I like best. It's like, oh, there's the bite. And I've, re I've read a couple of reviews for you and who, who cares about reviews? But, well, we do. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's, um, yeah. and they pick up on that in terms of some, some people are asking for more bites. So it's very interesting yeah. you, uh, I mean, I'm using bite as a very generic term here, but I think it's we know good what we're talking it's good about. But um, mm. it's, uh, it's something that when I hear bits like that, I'm going, oh, yeah, I want a, a, bit, a few more bits like that because... As you say, it is in you, perhaps, and um, yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about, oh, you know, the second coming and the big time. I mean, it totally is, uh, you, you know, you're a huge success anyway, but it's so great that you have that ambition and maybe that is associated with it, the honesty, the, the bite. Well, actually, you know, you are so right, um, because actually sometimes I think if you look at your heroes, they're your heroes because um, maybe you see a bit of yourself in them. Yeah. And actually, I've mentioned Dave Allen and Peter Cook and Peter Sellers and particularly Letterman. It's annoying having Letterman as a hero because for a UK audience, not everyone is that across what, he, um, what he's about. But he's the very distillation of, you know, because obviously there's always a connection, isn't there? Every artist got someone they hero worship that they wanted to be. Mm. Um, so then, then it would be Letterman for me. And what I love about Letterman is that he, has, he looks like a businessman. Mm. And he's in a suit with a generic haircut and this slightly cheesy smile. And he looks like a TV host, like he would be hosting a game show. But actually, the material when he, in his monologue is so cutting and mm. so satirical. And I love the juxtaposition of this friendly, warm, smiling guy <laughs> with this very sharp humour. And yeah. actually quite a cranky, curmudgeonly persona. And which I does, think that's which does magic. come out of, uh, from some of your bits, doesn't it? it well, it does. Of... And, and I think that um, maybe you've helped me with drawing attention to this bit of material, which is that mm. probably why the stand-up has sort of um, remained a fixture in my life and in my career, and why A, it's a pleasure and it's quite therapeutic, but B, it's a source of income, is that um, maybe that authentic, honest, a bit less crowd-pleasing version of me is what comes out on stage yeah um and i for example i, I love i love the, the little twist in the tail the little sting at the, at the end of a bit of material and so for example we have the 29th of this will obviously be watched in about 11 years time <laughs> on youtube but the 29th of february is a day when a lady gets to ask a man to marry him and of course, turns out it can be any day, but you know that's the old Victorian tradition. So I did this bit, um, sort of improvised really, very recently, where well, it, a few days ago, because we're in early March 2020 now. Mm. So I did a bit, and it was basically saying that this was quite a moment for me because my my wife, she basically, she kneeled down in front of me, and this, by the way, that, that hasn't happened in a while, but. So, and she's fallen to her, to her knees and she's put her, she's put her, you know, hand on my lap. And now, of course, we're married, right? So she, we can't, she can't ask me to marry her. <laughs> but she asked me to remarry her, you know, and it was, it was very emotional for her. Yeah. And 
my eyes were welling up, my face went red. Mm. And I said, can you give me a day to think about it? And this is not like, I mentioned it as not some kind of perfect joke, <laughs> but just that is actually a test case example joke of, I think my sort of uh, voice mm. is that we think we're going to get this corny love story. And it's like, with the prospect of actually, would I actually marry this woman second time <laughs> round? Give me a day to think about it. I just love that because then it sort of taps into the, you know, the Les Dawson, the kind of, you know, put upon husband. And, <laughs> but I, I just, it's really nice to throw an audience off the scent like that. And yeah. we've done stuff about, I think maybe the relationship stuff is quite a rich scene for a lot of comedians. I love doing it because I do love to mess around with the audience's perception. And yeah, talk about Brexit a lot. And the, my best Brexit stuff is about, about the personal connection because my wife who I've mentioned is German. She's from Munich and Bavaria. And I always say Brexit's happened, which means, you know, she'll have to go. Oh. So, you know, and it's just, again, people don't expect that from me. And it, and, it, and then the other thing is crowd work where there's nothing better than being really rude to the audience <laughs> and have them laugh along. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll say to, there'll be a lady in the front row and I go, you know, and you've, you know, can I just say, you're very beautiful. I mean, it could be the light, but, you know, and this is just, this is the, my pleasure. So I think yeah. I wonder whether maybe I take a take a little as a little note, a little direction from my stand up persona, and actually maybe let the world see that, not just yeah. comedy audiences. Yeah, yeah. So do you think there's anything in particular holding you back from doing that? Any fear? I mean, just like that clip we played in there. There's the joke is obviously against the telegraph, uh, but you know you mention anything that is you know. Has it's a the really word annoying Jew, joke, by the way. Has because the word Jews it, in or um, it's so frustrating because uh, you know this, which is when you're writing a joke. Mm. What I need is um, I need to say that I'm refreshed and I'm reading the telegraph. Sorry, mm. I've I've read the telegraph refreshed, um, and then I've got to have some slightly xenophobic emotion because I've been reading the telegraph. Yeah. And, I couldn't work out, I don't know what, where the Jews came from. I think it's probably just the strongest punchline. Yeah. But I'm not yeah. even sure it's even the right reference. But it's sometimes but that's, but in that's comedy, what I mean. it's just, yeah. it's just, the, it's just the right, it's, it's actually nearly just that because the word Jew has one syllable, it's just a better punchline. Yeah. But it could have been Poles yeah. um, or, or any, any, anything else. But, that, but that's what I mean. The point being is that when you're getting laughs out of um, maybe more you know, cutting stuff against you know, established media or anything you're doing. So it's not light observational stuff. You're going into those areas. Is there anything particular holding you back from doing that? When I go back to what your father said, his mantra, nice to be nice. Do you think that is holding you back? Have you got an inbuilt thing that you have to chip away at to really uh, break through there? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think you, I think that the challenge is to be as, uh, to be sufficiently nice the, the, to the point where it's authentic mm. but not beyond that and if you're not be disingenuous well that's right I mean maybe you're I'm, I do a lot of radio and maybe I'm making a you know doing a regular radio show and then I'm thinking well if it, if the producer isn't if one producer is better than the other producer then maybe you go to the boss and go producer A is better than producer B and I'm just telling you that whereas I think that sort of fills me with horror the idea of that and it's just like actually if the product's going to be better um, you've got to just level with people and yeah. that's the point where if it's hurting the product by having somebody that's not good enough years ago I used to um, 
direct an improv troupe when I was at university. Mm. And I'm very proud of myself because I fired one of the group, one of the comedians, <laughs> because she was a very nice person and she used to host all the parties for the group and she was just like super popular, mm. but was, was you know, relentlessly um, unfunny. It was just, and it was an open secret in the group and I definitely, I wasn't going to do it if everyone didn't think so. Mm. But I did get rid of this person. But I mean, that's like, you can count on the number of hands the times when I've been really ruthless like that. And um, mm. I think... So I think it's a, sort of the being nice thing is lovely, but it, it, it comes with a it comes at a price. Yeah. And I think also it's to do with um, a lack of self-belief and insecurity, a fear of failure. Yeah. And it, an extreme version of being nice is never putting yourself forward and never being pushy and never saying, hey, I'm the best, hire me, but rather accepting your lot in life. And that is not, that is not, a, you know, in terms of being nice, that's a down, it's a negative, not a positive. Mm. Did you ever have times as a child where you was, where you can remember failure or remember being made to, I mean, I'm looking back or the way I'm bringing up kids and when they do something that's not amazing, I wouldn't tell them it was amazing. I wouldn't tell them that was shit. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's a fine line, isn't there, as a parent? Yeah, yeah that's um, right. And... Did you have a childhood where your parents were, you know, it was so lovely, maybe. They were so positive and be proud and look great. Mm. And that, you know, maybe the things you did that weren't quite so good, you were... At home, it wasn't a problem. It was mm. a big problem at school. Yeah. And the reason why, my parents were busy running a pub, four children, working flat out, 14, 16-hour days. Don't know how they did it. And I went to quite an academic school quite a lot of pressure and there was not a lot of follow-through at home and it meant that I fell behind academically and with things like homework especially at uh, junior school which was a pressurized environment and I did not go with the flow as a creative kid mm. and I remember just like always trying to avoid homework and as mum's you know, was it dogs at my homework all that stuff Mm. So I remember having years of being really stressed out and having teachers be really cross with me and not be able to do anything about it. So I think the school, I think school was quite scarring for me. I then went to secondary school where they didn't know me and didn't know how idle and work shy I was. Mm. And I decided almost like a performance to reinvent myself as this real little swat. <laughs> and I just felt like I could reinvent myself. So in the secondary school, I was... I was happy because mm. I started afresh. But I think those, those years at junior school were quite, um, were quite corrosive mm. for my confidence because I just had teacher after teacher going, where's your homework? You're not doing what you need to do and it's not good enough. And it was constant detentions and worksheets. And I was just, honestly, I really felt like I was in trouble for years. I was a, I was a quirky, creative kid that wasn't interested in in what was being taught and then there was no follow-through at home and it's not meant to criticize my parents mm. but they didn't have this very formal excellent education that I had so there wasn't really it wasn't coherent when I got home so I, I would I would come into the kitchen and, and no one would say so what's your homework what have you got today um, it was actually um, anarchy and right. I think that's very tough for kids kids really need a structure mm. and when my kids come home from school I just asked them what their homework is. 
even if they don't do it straight away, it's like, tell me what, what you got and then tell me when you think you're going to do it, which I think <laughs> works really well with kids. Let them schedule it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, again, not critical of my parents. I don't think they were able to do that. Yeah. But it meant that, that um, I just sort of soaked up. I mean, abuse is a strong word, but I mean, sometimes it was really abusive, you know. The teachers were just always, you know, cross with me. Right. And anyway, secondary school, age 13, I don't want that to happen again. So every day, I basically created a structure for myself um, because I knew it wasn't there at home. So I would be writing down what my homework was and did it all in perfect handwriting. So age 13, complete reinvention. And my first report from my French teacher, Mrs. Hudson said, Mark Dolan is the most enthusiastic boy in the school, (laughs) exclamation mark. And by the way, this was a pretty academic school where the head teacher of the previous school advised my parents not to send me because I would struggle. Now, two things happened there. Um, A, a chance to reinvent and B, therefore, maybe the beginning of my performance career and this idea that if you change what the public see, if you change what's on the outside, Mm. it can take you a long way. Mm. Welcome to showbiz. Yeah. Because it is a construct, isn't it? Yeah. And it's... You might be on the edge of that again now. Then, from what you're, from the way you're talking, yeah, you have that uh, potential, that fear of failure, which we all do. But yes. you know, you've talked about where that might, might have come from. Yes, you know the um, um, where you might stumble, getting this more cutting edge to you. But there's this reinventing yourself is exciting, isn't it? That you I, could, I think it is. You could do that. I, in the past, I've daydreamed about doing it in America or something. But yeah. as you well know, with two young children, mm. a mortgage um, and all of that stuff, and also being 45, you're like, no, no, that's, you know, that's uh, actually that's maybe a step too far in terms of a reinvention. Yeah. But actually, a reinvention of your own mentality and your, pro, you know, yeah. I, I don't think it's a problem. You can resurrect your own brand. And sometimes people really... Um, people are really inspired by and excited by a brand that, you know, had some status and then maybe ebbed away and then sort of makes a glorious return. You know, you see it in the fashion world, don't you? And um, you see a company like sort of, I don't know, Burberry or something on the brink of bankruptcy. And then Mm. Kate Moss wears (laughs) one of their scarves and then bang, they're back, you know, and I think, I think our industry is probably no different actually. And sometimes what I think is, you know, although I've come and gone and I've been a sort of intermittent figure on, on the box and elsewhere, oh. um, actually, I would say that having some recognition, even if it's a case of, oh, we don't see much of you, is better than having no recognition. It's still, it's still a brand to build on, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And as you say, um, you have had all, you have got all that experience and... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm excited by a, a potential. Because it's only tweaks, isn't it? What you're doing and getting that little edge out of you more consistently, that could be, that could be really exciting in terms of showing honesty. And I don't know. I think, I think that's right. And um, it's not a case of being horrible or ruthless or no, nasty. Let's but, not go for Katie Hopkins. Well, that's exactly right. But if you're, <laughs> if you're, straight, if you're straight with uh, people and straight with yourself... By the way, there's another big thing, and I know this is all about psychology, and I mm. think something I'm really, really, really all about is change. Yeah. And I can't remember now, unfortunately, the quote, but there's Churchill, who's always worth quoting... 
um, was a great believer in change and the idea that your whole existence is one permanent evolution. Yeah. And it ties in with books like Who Moved My Cheese, which I don't know if you know that wafer thin self-help book, but it's mm. very good. And the message yeah. of it is basically, I don't know, you're an accountant, you lose your job and you just freak out. And it's like, no, 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 this is an opportunity because remember you do watercolor painting and you've got your redundancy and you've got a year now in which you can do that, you know, and it's just a case of don't see change. We know as humans, it's tied in with survival that change is a threat, isn't it? Mm. And it's unwelcome. But of course, what it really is, is the keys to uh, our future and probably success and happiness and all those things. So I'm a great believer in change. And I think change is massively exciting. Mm. And there've been a few moments in my life where I've probably done a big change. Mm. And I think I can feel another one coming. Beautiful. That's exciting. So as we near the end of this, you... Occasionally on my phone, occasionally on my phone, I've got a wall, a wallpaper and it just says change just so I don't forget. That's great. Because in, in, in the end, if something's not, if your, if your life's not working or it's not exactly where you want it to be, change it, Mm. you know, and actually see that as very exciting. Mm. And do you feel the passing of time urges you on more you talk about being 45 and not wanting to be doing certain things at 60 we know from kind of bringing up kids that that time passes so very quickly is that now a big spur yeah i think it is i think i'm hoping nathan that sometimes people have a bit of a renaissance either Mm. professionally or personally romantically financially any of the above spiritually um in middle age Mm. and Maybe that's because that's the moment where you realise that we're in a bit of a hurry now. We need to crack on. It's a deadline, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's the big deadline. And we all know there isn't anybody creative that doesn't enjoy a deadline slash need one. Mm. And maybe this is one of life's deadlines is being in your 40s because mm. it is the point where you there's no getting away from it now. Yeah. you It's now or never sort of thing, which I know seems very negative, but... But it's not negative because you can turn it into such a positive because I'm in my 40s. I'm exactly, yeah, I'm exactly where you are with that, that you you have that experience. You're at the peak of your powers in terms of yeah. what you've um, what you've achieved and the body of work you have. But also now you have that deadline that suddenly comes into view, which is death. And I don't yeah. think it's a negative because we're all going to die. I use it as such a positive in terms of let's get on with it. Let's work hard. Let's let's uh, not waste any more time. And I think that the joy of being in your 20s, I advise people, anyone in their 20s is make mistakes and piss around and try stuff and mm. experiment and just be a disaster for like a decade. Just be disastrous. Go and start a business in Malaysia and then just, you know, it's it's just whatever it whatever it is. But at our stage, it's, it's different. And in the sort of cycle of life, you know, now it's just a case of... Um, I mean, can I be honest with you, notwithstanding, money has never been a focus because I don't see the point in focusing on money as a thing because it's just abstract. Mm. But the bottom line is, as you know, for example, in comedy, if you are impossibly funny, then money will come to you Mm. because every gig that you do, it goes, well, you'll get called back and that's, you know, and then it will it will spiral. So I think there's a virtuous circle when it comes to comedy. Mm. And yes, there are people who are hot who get fast tracked, but it's quite meritocratic, certainly on the circuit. But there's, um, I have another big burden, a, a real sense of 
um, responsibility. And it's the following, which is my very purpose on earth. So I have two sons and I have a fabulous wife, but they've got their own lives. My wife's an architect, my sons are at school. They're gonna do their own thing and have relationships. So what am I for? And that's probably the thing that weighs heaviest on my shoulders in terms of my career is not sort of embarrassment if someone goes, oh, you know, balls of steel. Oh God, we're not still talking about balls of steel, are we? You know, it's, it's a sense of duty that you have a talent, you have maybe a bit of a gift, everyone's got a gift. And if I was on my deathbed, Nathan, thinking I hadn't really given it enough of a crack, I hadn't really fulfilled that talent I had, those gifts I was given, I didn't really, you know, didn't quite really go for it. Uh, then that would be, I would be very unhappy on my deathbed. Mm. So probably my greatest response, I mean, I would love to like clear my mortgage and just have cash and just be, you know, just fly around the world and stay in nice hotels. Of course, that would be pleasant. But really what drives me is a sense of that I had a talent and that there was a TV show or a radio show or a stand-up tour or an article I've written, any, any creative output mm. that just um, I can look at and go, there you go, that's what I'm talking about. You know, Elton John wrote Candle in the Wind, jobs are good, and, you know, and yeah. I think that we all need to feel that we've got some of that down. You know, Bruce Springsteen said, the great things about songs is that they stay written. Mm. And I think... You know, I've had flashes of it recently with radio because radio is something I've done throughout my career is radio and I've been doing some radio shows and I will do the show and come home and remember little remarks I've made in the show and be proud of myself and chuckling away at some of the things I've said mm. and thinking I did, I did a better job of that than anyone else could at that moment. Mm. So I think that those are the moments what, that I want more of where I'm thinking that's great work and that you've, you've totally you know, fulfilled your potential there with that piece of work you've done. Yeah. And as you say, talking about the deathbed, and that's something that drives me on, the thought of when the race is run, you're looking back over your life and your career. And I've seen some family members on their deathbed, and my grandma particularly, very calm, very almost serene, happy, because she'd lived a good life and she was happy with what she'd done. And the thought of being at that stage and having regrets and having things that you wish you hadn't done or wish you had done uh, fills me with such drive and desire to do it now before I get to that stage and have those regrets, yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, it might only be, it doesn't need to be a lot. It might just, mm. it, by the way, you must agree, it will never be your bank balance. It will never, oh, be, no. it will never be that when you die, there's a million pounds tax-free sitting no. there i mean that you're delighted for your family that they're going to be secure but with my grandma i just think she was a good person and she knew that and she was generous and she'd done her best and she was you know brought up a family in the best way she could so she was happy and she wasn't horrible to anyone and yeah that was that was that's what you need when you're in those later years those thoughts of i've done everything i could you know you do. And I think we're in an unusual situation. That's what's special about this show is that you're talking to creative people, artists, comedians. Um, and we have a slight responsibility. We, we, we're very privileged because we're not, we're not in, in Tesco stacking shelves or in a call centre 
doing telephone sales, which are all both jobs I have actually done. Mm. Um, and the responsibility that comes with that is actually a sense that by the end of your life that you've made a go of it and that you've had some creative success, you know. And when Ricky Gervais is on his deathbed, you know, it'll come back to the office and John Cleese will come back to faulty towers and maybe we can't necessarily scale those heights but you just want to know that you've made a contribution that there's something out there that wasn't there before you arrived i think a final note by the way would be um to never get bitter yeah and just to smile through life and to be to definitely have a positive outlook and what I would say is in terms of anybody that's hoping to change and do a reinvention that we're both talking about, we're both hopeful of, mm. is um, that if you're, if you're bitter, then it will not happen. It cannot happen. It will yeah. just weigh you down. And, if you, and I think it ties in with the acceptance idea that if you're just going to go, do you know what? I've had a few slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and a few setbacks, but put on a smile and iron your shiny showbiz suit yeah and get back out there and yeah. you know elton was at the very low point of his career in 1983 and he just found this lyric i'm still standing and the whole madness started again mm. and that was his big comeback moment but people forget he had a f five six years of cocaine blitzed obscurity so we can all we can all come back just like elton <laughs> but you can't. But if he'd been bitter and raging against the world, it wouldn't have happened. Oh God, yeah. That that song and indeed that lyric was a was an act of optimism, you know. And it's only on that wave of positivity and optimism that you can really get forward in life. Yeah, that's so important. And I say that to well, my kids, but anyone kind of of twenty twenty five because I use uh, I work with you know some other comedians and some people coming up and. Those negative emotions, bitterness, cruelty, spreading shit about people. Yeah. You know, we're talking about a bite, a little edge to material. What it's not is, yeah, absolutely being cruel, bitter. All those things that are really going to scar you when that race is run. And it's run so quickly, it'll be upon us that we are looking back rather than looking forward. And all those emotions, I think, will really scar you when the race is run, yeah. Definitely. You know, if you've got Mrs. Brown's boys, not everyone's cup of tea. I'm just thinking, well done to the guy that wrote that. It's really hard to get a sitcom on telly. Millions of people love it. Well mm. done him. Good luck to him. If you hate it, I don't, I completely respect that. Well, then you write your sitcom and it'll be for a different audience, probably BBC Two. Um, and it's just like super, super positive about it, you know, rather than going, why is this rubbish on TV? You know, and Anybody that talks like that, those are the people that I'm afraid are probably going to stay where they are. Yeah. And of course, we've been talking about your career, you know, when you can compare it to mine. You had such success, you know, huge success, and you still do. But we're only talking about relative success. You had such success in those first 10 years. When I was, when I was off, traveling around the world, having given up, basically, given up on the stand-up um, to try and get some material. I, I went off around the world and just wrote novels and plays and musicals and whatever and was just trying to live a life to get material. Um, you know, we've, of course, been talking about your career as if it's not been you know, relatively a huge success all the way along. But it's so great to hear you talking about that drive and that ambition to be, I don't know what the phrase you used was, but in terms of that mega success, you know. Um, well, I guess a lot of people yeah. just sit back on their laurels that have had your level of success and still do. 
Well, I think um, you must have uh, found that period when you were um, abroad still mm. very fulfilling because you were producing work, and it goes back to my point earlier that your soul doesn't know what you're invoicing for for this stuff. Absolutely, Your, yeah. your soul was, just knows that you're producing work and that it's very satisfying. I was at my most happy in New Zealand writing a novel, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's... Um, you know, but I really, did, really didn't want to airbrush this conversation today, and I think it's much more helpful on these occasions to um, just say what you think and how you feel. And it's, you know, yeah, I'm I'm still full of questions. I'll have one more for you before we close because we haven't even we haven't really. You talk about filling the soul, and that comes back to contentment and happiness. I don't think we've we've used the word happy at all in this conversation mm. there was that time in 2010 where you were depressed and clearly not happy um happy where are you where are you now are you, are you where are you now in terms of being happy because it seems like you're you are on the edge of something the the thoughts are in your head in terms of change and reinvention and excitement and 45 could be the start which you absolutely could and you've got all this experience Right now, I compare myself to you, and I'm, um, hey, let's just throw this in here. I was nominated for an award uh, this week, and it's exciting for me. I know, I saw um, that. I was very the, proud of the, you. At the, the Leicester Comedy Festival. It's just, it's, I thought it was uh, really well-deserved, and it was, um, it's a really, really important award. I feel excited that um, this show in particular, I'm very excited about. I, I feel like I'm on the edge of something with this show in particular, and I'm at my happiest when I'm at the edge of it and you don't know how it's going to be, but you're, you feel ready and for the task ahead, how are you in terms of being happy right now, you know, with that, with those thoughts running through your head? Um, definitely happy. And the way I see my happiness is like uh, a Gore-Tex raincoat. And what that means is that it's basically it's waterproof it doesn't mean that as you wear it there will be thunderstorms and heavy rain showers and that Gore-Tex is sort of tested and even tiny bits of moisture might seep through the fabric slightly that there's a hint of dampness there but it's almost like the decision is I'm happy the mentality is I'm happy and it's only something like uh professional rejection or a parking ticket or a row with your other half or you break your leg or something that clearly that's going to dent the happiness mm. it's going to rain on that coat but it's still waterproof and you're still wearing it yes it's raining but you're more or less dry and I think that's my attitude to so what I couldn't say to you is I'm happy and life is perfect I would say I'm I'm happy and life is not perfect. Mm. The only other thing I want to do is it's the 20-year anniversary of what would have been our joint Edinburgh show in um, 2001, next year. So let's do it. Let's do that. <laughs> I'll talk about crisps. You can talk about whatever you were going to talk about in 2001. Yeah. Um, Must be how great Tony Blair was as Prime Minister or something. <laughs> <laughs> let's recreate it at the Tron, if just the tonic will have us back. My God. Um, <laughs> but I've always uh, admired you. So it's like, commit to your gift. And I think that's probably something we all need to do. Mm. 
Absolutely. Turn up even when it's raining and it's a small gig in Soho. You never know who's going to be in the room. Because if you think about the number of people who have a talent and they maybe neglect that talent and there's no there's no worse form of torture than that, is it? Yeah. Knowing that, that, that there's this talent, this gift, this calling and you just like ignore it or sit on it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, that's one of the big things I learned from childhood, looking into my grandparents' eyes and imagining being that old because a lot of kids I don't think do that. And I did it. I don't know why I did it, but I looked into their eyes and, and from a very early age was thinking, well, what do I want to have done when I'm, when I'm that old? Because kids don't realise they're going to be that old. Correct. But I don't know where it came from, but I would look into my granddad's eyes and go, I'm going to be sitting here in 70 years' time. What would I like to be telling my grandchildren what I did with my life? Yeah. Well, that's right. And by the way, if it's a career in show business, I mean, notwithstanding all my... Uh, all our conversations about what success looks like actually if you get to the end of your life and you have basically had a career in show business that is actually success that is the only tangible example of success mm. is that you're still doing it uh, probably you know what I mean so you probably yeah. take a little bit of pressure off both of ourselves by just thinking a producer friend of mine said recently he's like uh, just stay in the field make sure you're still in the field yeah, yeah. you know what I mean you're in parliament you're on the back benches Jeremy Corbyn, for God's sakes, an obscure, bearded socialist six, seven years ago. Now, obviously, he's going to go back to being that. <laughs> but, you know, I think Jeremy Corbyn, you know what I mean? What a, what a, there's hope for everyone, isn't there? <laughs> Absolutely. Mark, thank you so much. My goodness. I need to be paying you for this big money. Don't, don't I feel uh, I feel good after uh, after that. Usually it's the other way around. People say, "Oh, I feel so good after that," but uh, oh, it's been so lovely talking with you. And uh, thank you. And I keep, I'm not supposed to look at you, but you are very physically attractive, which is means <laughs> occasionally I just got to treat myself. And what I do is I just I quickly look over, drink it up, and then look at look look away again. <laughs> right. Thank you, Mark. That is our show for today. Join us again next week for more psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us, and any psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Casty, BSc in Psychology, produced and edited by Mike Hanson, BA English for Pop People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed in those video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at Mr. Mark Dolan. Mark, you're wonderful. You're amazing. You too, darling. Takes one to know one, baby. Lots of love and uh, see you all again next week. Pod people.